Welcome, everybody, to Encounter Church. It is good to be together in person and live online as well. Um, hey, it has been a decade this past year, right? Uh, it, it's, it's been a journey. Uh, and so listen, uh, we all know tons and tons of people um, who, uh, who need some hope and some, need some encouragement uh, this season. And, uh, and I, what I'd encourage you guys is, uh, is, instead of thinking about everybody who needs hope and encouragement this season, is think about just one person. Like, like think of, of one who needs, especially to hear about the hope that is in Jesus and his resurrection this coming Easter weekend, and make that invite. You can direct message them now or, or send a text, uh, but God is bringing to mind someone who needs an invite, especially to them, and uh, just let them know that we've got a spot saved for them online and in person as well. And don't forget, Good Friday at 6.30 as well. Um, today we're continuing on the series, The Last Word, where we're taking a look, and you can tell a lot about somebody's life by the last words they shared at their death. Uh, and before we get to that, I just, I want to make a confession uh, to some of you guys is to say that um, I'm somebody who doesn't finish things uh, a lot of the time. I, I start a lot of things. That's usually not the problem. But it's like seeing it through and, and finally finishing it off. It's especially bad that last like two or three percent. I'm a guy, I get things like 98% of the way there, you know, 97%. And I just move on, move on to the next thing. And I don't know where I learned that from. I think it was like too much school along the way, and you just learn like 97 is an A. Like, I don't need to impress anybody with doing better than an A, right? So it's just kind of get at the projects around the house are especially bad this kind of way. Like, my wife and I will tile the entire, you know, backsplash in the, in the kitchen and even like reconfigure some, some plugs with the spacers and all that and trim down, trim back on. That's not even the problem, but it's like that one bead of caulk behind the trim. So every time I go to the sink and like, you know, wash my hands and, and sing happy birthday, you know, during the whole hand washing experience, I'm looking at this one bead of caulk that I have to lay yet. And listen, it's never going to get done. It's like 98, 97% of the way there and it's done. It's moved on. I got a list of projects along the house that it's just, it's done and I've moved on. And it's okay. Like you can, you can laugh at me for like the, uh, the unfinished nature of all these projects, but I know you're the same way. Like, I can see you, you know, like elbowing each other, poking each other. You're watching online right now on your couch at home. I can still see you elbowing and poking each other about the jobs, the projects that are left unfinished. You know, 98, 97% of the way there, right? Like somebody out there spent the entire day yesterday on Saturday doing like a dozen loads of laundry, and like washing, drying, put everybody's laundry away except yours, and it's sitting in the laundry basket right next to the dresser, literally two feet from its final destination and job completion, but it's left undone. And all week long, you're just going to live out of that laundry basket instead of doing the extra like two or three percent just to finish the job completely, right? Like you're no different. We're all in this together and I'm preaching to somebody who's got like three credits to go before their certification or their graduation or, or like whatever it is. It's like 98% of the way there, but just not quite finished. How many of us have done like the Bible, read the Bible in a year program, right? And you like get through and you power right through the second half of Exodus. And you're like, I did that though. And Leviticus still have momentum. Even the Psalms did it. And then you get into the major prophets and you're like, these things go on. These things go on for a little while. And you're left, and it's just not 
quite there. And you read the Bible in a year program, turns into two years, three years, four years, and you're still like not quite finished that way. There's just some encouragement to those of you like me who are maybe not finishers, you know, like all the way through. You, we're in good company. Uh, Michelangelo's David statue, also not finished. Same as us, same as me, me and Michelangelo, two peas in a pod. Mount Rushmore, they, uh, their federal grant went up, and so Mount Rushmore isn't even done yet. Mozart's Requiem, not finished. Me, Mozart, Michelangelo, you, we're all in this together. We're all not finishers. In fact, you could probably say that you will not, and I will not finish everything that we set out to do in our whole life. And like, think about it for just a minute. We will die with some kind of unfinished business. The question is, what are we going to leave unfinished? And so with that kind of question in mind, I'd, li- I'd like us to turn our attention to the one person, the only person I'm convinced in human history who has actually finished everything that he set out to do. And I'd like to introduce him by going to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, it starts off, and we'll pick it up in verse 28, where it says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Hang on to that. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, and they soaked a sponge on it. They put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. And when he received the drink, he said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. That's what we're talking about today. The one guy who finished everything that he set out to do. We're in this series where we're taking a look at the last words of Jesus. And here we get to these words, it is finished. And and I want to highlight, I guess, like, like the sense of finished that he is talking about. Like how finished it is. And so there's a, a particular word for it. In our language, it's three words. It is finished. In his words that was recorded in the gospel, the Jesus story, the biography according to John, it was just one word. And I like to teach that word to you. It's tetelestai. That's the word. It is finished. All one word, tetelestai. It's a, it's a powerful word. It's, it's more than just checking something off from a list and moving on. Tetelestai is a goal achieved, or to bring about to a successful end. It's to see something through completely. My first job as a teenager, I had a boss who loved to tell all of the, all of the employees, who was basically all of our first jobs ever, you know, we're all like 15, 16, 17 years old, and we don't, we don't know what we're doing, right? We're, we're trying, you know, trying our best. And so it was his job really to like coach us into like how to, how to work how to be an employee, and he used to tell us all the time, just about every single day, I could hear him either say to me or somebody else, a job half done is a job not done at all. And I think about that every time I leave a project left unfinished. (laughs) Hear his voice in the back of my head, a job half done is a job not finished at all. Jesus is the one, though, to tell a story. He carried it on to completion. In the English language, we have three, three main tenses that we use all the time. It's past, present, and future. In, uh, in the language that's recorded in here from John, the biographer, he's got like seven to choose from. And in this, he uses the, the tense, it's called a perfect tense, to tell a 
A perfect tense means that something that was done in the past, but something that has present implication, has present effect. So when Jesus is declaring out to tell us, what he is saying in that moment is that this thing was done in a particular time and space a couple thousand years ago in the Middle East in Israel on a hill called Calvary. It was done, but yet that event has continual present effect even today and I'd say even on into eternity from that point forward to tell us that it is finished. And when Jesus, when Jesus says, this is the thing, when he cried out on the cross, it is finished. This is the full irony of the statement. Nobody disagreed with him. You know, when Jesus says, it is finished, I think that the Roman centurion standing next to him looks over at him and says, yeah, no. It is. Pilate, that he kind of had these skirmishes with, looks at this guy who is this rebellious leader, you know? And at least we could, we could avoid some kind of insurrection again. Finally, that's done. It's finished. Pilate doesn't disagree with him. The religious leaders who caused some of these events to happen saw him as a competitor, and now they're going, that, that competitor is, is sure finished, isn't he? The disciples following Jesus, John who was there, and the disciples who probably heard about it when it all went dark, would have agreed with the statement, it is finished, because they saw their hopes of this coming kingdom that's here, and not quite here yet, but it sure is coming later in power, and we get to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus the Messiah, who's coming with this kingdom, and now, it's finished. Even the devil, Satan, sees what's happening, and says, God died. It's finished. I won. Nobody disagreed with Jesus when he said, it is finished. And that's the irony, that he had something so completely different at stake there. When Jesus says to Telesai, it is finished, he doesn't say it as a consolation. Oh, I guess it's done now. He says it in the bold words of victory. He says it like Neil Armstrong landing on the moon and saying one small step for a man, a giant leap for mankind. He says it like the radio broadcaster who says after a 108-year hiatus, Cubs win, Cubs win. They say it. He says it in victory. I came across this. I love this so much, you guys. I came across this. The line, I thirst, that he said earlier. It's a weird one because Jesus at no point during his, his suffering and crucifixion at no point was he trying to alleviate any amount of suffering whatsoever. And but he was offered uh, painkillers, even like narcotics, to like dull the pain away and just kind of escape some of the physical and emotional pain that was happening there. He was offered that, and repeatedly Jesus turns it down because he doesn't want to escape any amount of the suffering, of the depth of that suffering, on our behalf. So why now does he say, I thirst? Because after a long day of, I don't know, getting crucified, he is indeed thirsty. And with his last dying breath, he knows what's coming. And he wants to make sure that what he has to say is going to be spoken in such boldness and such victory that 2,000 years later, we will still be talking about it. So from the cross, he says, I'm thirsty. And they give him a little bit to drink. 
with a clear throat now so he can speak up. He pushes himself up and declares in victory to Telesai, it is finished. In the entire New Testament, this word is used only one time. This is the only time. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's used one more time. When God creates the sun, moon, and stars, he says it's good. And when God creates the land and the sea and the fish and the birds, he says it's good. And when God creates vegetation and plants, he says that it's good. And when God creates humankind, he steps back and he says it's to tell us I. Very good. I love that we have such a God, such a, a poetic and truthful God, that at the moment of creation, he says to Telestai. And at the moment of redemption, he shouts to Telestai. At the time when the world was made, he said, It is finished. I did it. I made the world. And at the time the world was saved, to Telestai. It is finished. I did it. It's words. It's words shouted out in boldness, in victory. It's used a bunch of other times in the Bible, uh, those two times. Outside of the Bible, they used it a few more. I'd like to show a few of them to you. The first one was a, a servant. Uh, masters would tell their servants, I'd give them a list of some jobs to do. And there's this one story in particular, not in the Bible, but a, a father who gives his son a long list of tasks, in fact, a, a mission to accomplish, with like subplots, submissions, you know, uh, involved throughout. And the epic story of this son who goes out and fulfills all of these missions comes back. And what is the word that he uses to tell his father? I did every last thing on the list. I saw it through to completion, finality, to tell a story. I did it. It's finished. A judge used this word. Uh, particularly uh, people who were put into prison, they'd have their lists of offenses next to their cell. And then the person who had paid the debt eventually and goes before the judge, either with the money, with the time, whatever, it's paid for, it goes before the judge, the judge writes on the list of offenses to tell us that it's finished, it's paid up, it's done. So that way if you go out of here and you go in the marketplace, you're like, hey, hey, hey isn't this the guy who did the thing? Shouldn't he be in jail right now? And they have his card and says, no, no, to tell us that it's finished, it's done. In fact, it was used not only with judges and servants, with accountants as well. Uh, that if a debt was paid up, if a land deed was, was finished and, and completed, it would have to be signed, it would have to be dated, it would have to have a clerk writing over the front of it to tell us that it's finished. Um, there were some researchers who dug up this um, his office in in Egypt, in ancient times, they, they discovered this with shards and, and writings with just a list of things on it. And then the word, tetelestai, written over it. Just like a whole bunch of them. Archaeologists like look at this and go, it's, a, it's like an ancient uh, accountant's office. Like right here that, that we discovered. It's, it's paid up. Your debt is paid. In Jesus' day, people, they, they, used, to, they used to get to a, a phone and call into their favorite radio program and say, we're to tell us I'm making that one up. That one is totally made up. That didn't, that didn't just, just making sure you're paying attention. The Egypt thing did happen, though. Uh, accountants did use the language to declare it to tell us It's paid up. It's finished. Artists, let's step back. And seeing that their 
painting or their sculpture could not be corrected or improved upon. One artist was known to say, mutter to Telestai. It's finished. It cannot be improved upon or corrected in any way to Telestai. Okay, that's the sense of finish. What is the it? Like, well, what, what was finished, right? We know that it, whatever it was, all the way through to completion with present-day implications. But what, what's the it? And listen, all of our hope as believers, as followers of Jesus, all of our hope hangs on that, on that statement, on that line, to tell us that it's finished. What is the it that it refers to? And this is like, like Christianity 101 kind of stuff. So if somebody's wondering, like, what is the hope of the gospel? What is the message of Jesus? It's, it's in this word. It's finished. To tell sight right here. Uh, first thing that it is finished is simply the statement that God is a God who keeps his promises. There's promises. There's prophecies in the Bible. There's the Old Testament. They were obsessed with finding the Messiah, naming. What is the Messiah going to look like? They were a hopeless people wandering in darkness, and they needed hope, and so they clung to hope. In fact, we're going to do a series a little bit later on called How to Hope from the prophet Jeremiah because they were looking for hope around every corner. We have a lot to learn from them. And they called this what the prophet or this what the Messiah is going to be like. He's going to come from David. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to do miracles. He's going to rise from the dead. He's going to be betrayed by these pieces of silver. It was so specific that some statisticians get together and they're like figuring out, like, how is one person going to fulfill all of these different prophecies all together? Lee Strobel talks about it in his book, uh, A Case for Christ. And he says the odds are just astronomical. Like, how could somebody do all of this stuff? You know, and he says it's, it's like one in, one in a quadrillion, which is the equivalent of covering the entire planet with one and a half inch square white tiles Spending your whole life trying to find the one tile with the red dot on the back, all seven continents, all the oceans, uh, the whole surface area of the earth, and you only get one shot. But the point is that God is a God who keeps his promises. Because it's not just the prophecies, it's what the prophecy points towards. It's what the prophecy, what the promise points to. And Jesus says in Luke 24, after the resurrection of the dead on the road to Emmaus, he finds some of his disciples who are just wondering what in the world just happened. And he goes, he explains everything, starting from the very, very beginning, how it all points to him. It's my story through and through. I am a God who keeps my promises. And church, when he promises you that he has a hope and a future for you, remember, he is a God who keeps his promises. That's the first thing. The other thing is that he, he canceled sin. Like when he says to Telestai, it's finished. Sin is canceled. The, the thing is, about sin that we forget a lot is that like even if it's canceled it still has to be paid for so true story earlier this week i get a i get a random phone call from somebody who says listen i feel really bad um i a car tires it was raining i was by your house i totally tore up your lawn and because i'm such an excellent lawn care person i had no i had no idea (laughs) 
I never noticed. I didn't. So he says, listen, I want to make it right. You know, so like, let me call a company. Let me square this thing up for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this thing right. And because I didn't even notice, and I just thought it was nice that he calls me and like owns up to it. I'm like, hey, listen, you know what? Don't worry about it. I got it. Now, don't blow this out of proportion. It's just grass seed a little bit. But like, listen, it's going to have to be paid for by someone. I didn't hold them accountable for it. I said, don't worry about it. Go on with your day. But I'm still now the one who has to go to the hardware store and get some grass seed and lay it on there and tell the kids for the first half of the summer not to go buy dad's patch of mud at the bottom of the hill anymore, right? Now, now that's my job. I'm going to pay for it. Imagine how it would be if the guy who called me hangs up the phone and his first thought is, oh, I'm glad I don't have to pay for it. And his second thought is, man, I should, I should try to pay for that. I should try to do something. I should try to surprise him. He's the best neighbor a guy could ever hope for. Uh, I should do something to show him that I, that I appreciate. You know, you know what? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do it. I'm going to sneak in at night. I'm going to pay for this thing. I'm going to take care of this whole thing. Even though I told him, I got this, I'll pay for this, he's not allowing me to pay for the thing that I said that I was going to be. And this is ridiculous when we're talking about grassy, but isn't this the same exact thing we do with our sins all the time? Like, Jesus, I know you paid the debt you paid for, but I just, I'm racking myself with guilt over this thing that I did. You, I'm beating myself up, and Jesus is going... I was beaten so you don't have to be. Like, that's the point. I got this. I paid for this. That sin, it still has to get paid for. Reminds me of the story of this this little old lady who who calls up her her insurance company one time, her life insurance company, and says, listen, I I can't pay for my husband's premium, like, any longer. I just, I don't have the money in the customer service rep is getting her account information pulled up, just kind of chats with her, see what's going on. Why, why can't you pay for the premium anymore? She goes, well, ever since my husband died, he was the breadwinner and I can't afford it. And the person's like, ma'am, the benefit is yours. You don't have to keep on paying for the policy anymore. The benefit is for you to keep. And that's what we do. We forget He paid for it. Stop making the monthly on it again and again. Uh, God is a God who keeps his promises. Uh, Sin is canceled, and along with it, shame. Shame is the the sticky part of the consequences of sin. Uh, Shame has a staying power. That, That sin is doing something bad. Shame is believing that you're bad. Sin is making a mistake. Shame is believing that you're a mistake. It's, it sticks, sticks on. Uh, Brene Brown has, uh, author, speaker, etc., has such a good illustration. Um, I heard her share this one uh, one time, and she's just kind of casually talking about a, a family vacation that she took and the, the power of shame that it has. Um, her husband, her kids were at a cottage uh, on a river. It's just It was great. Her and her husband, you know, with the kids, didn't get a lot of alone time, so they make a, they make a swim date. First thing in the morning, they're going to go out, and they're just going to have a swim. The kids are you're inside. There, somebody's watching them, and they're just going to hang out, get a little exercise, go swimming together. The morning comes. It's early. You know, she puts her suit on, goes out to the water, jumps in. 
he gets to the edge of the water and just freezes. And she's like, get in the water. He freezes. And then, and then he backs up and he goes inside. So naturally, anybody who's been in a relationship knows that there's now conflict in the relationship, and they start just bickering about that. Like, what was that? You, know, we, we, you made a plan, you always make plans, you always break plans, you don't follow through, and it becomes some, about something that it was never really about in the first place. Of their week-long trip, three days are just ruined by their, like, skirmishes and, and by their fighting, right? It's now into the fourth day, and she decides something needs to be done. I got to do something, say something. And so she goes, and her trademark thing is like vulnerability, which applies here perfectly. And she goes to her husband and says, I'm going to be very, very real and very, very vulnerable with you. You know, we don't get a lot of time with just the two of us with the kids anymore. And I recognize that my body isn't the same as when we got married so many years ago, especially after the kids. And so when I put my swimming suit on, and you came to the edge of the water, and you saw me in my swimming suit, I carry a lot of the shame around with me already. And when you just stop and go back inside, I think there's something wrong with me. I, I carry that shame. And in a moment of vulnerability on his part, he says, last night, I had a dream that our boy jumped in the water. A boat was coming down the river. And so I jumped in after him. And the harder I swam out to him, the further he seemed. And the further he seemed away from me, the closer the boat got to him. And just before impact, I woke up. And as soon as my toe hit that water, I was back in that dream. I was worried that I lost our boy, and it was my fault. I was worried. I'm incapable of caring after my family. I, 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 I don't think that I can protect my own son. I carry that shame. Church, we're not talking about losing just a few days of our vacation. Shame from that sin can rob us of our whole lives. And if we allow that to be the governing narrative over our life, it could take our eternity away from us as well. That's why Jesus, in that moment of vulnerability, carries the shame. That Jesus talks to and even touches a bleeding woman who is ceremonially unclean. That his longest conversation with a person in the entire, in all four accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is with a Canaanite woman who was married five times and the guy she was with wasn't her husband. He takes on the shame of the people around him. And then he's beaten for it. He's put up on a cross and he dies with that shame. In Philippians 2, he made himself low, even to the uh, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then God exalted him and raised him up to the highest place. And he sits at right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's why Paul can say in Romans 1, I am unshamed. I am unashamed. This is the power of the gospel. It can unshame us from the sin and the shame that like sticks on us all the time. It's finished. To die. it's done. 
God is God. He keeps his promises. He cancels sin. He cancels shame. And he cancels death. Death. I'm reminded from time to time that people fear death. In fact, on the list of things that people fear, death is consistently ranked at just about towards the top. There's only one of them that's usually above. Does anybody, anybody know? Public speaking. Let that hit. Most of you would rather die than be me for a day. It's hard not to take that personally, okay? No, we fear, we fear death. And the tetelestai of the cross, the finishing of the cross, is to say, this is not the last word. We've got a sign for it. We've got an image for it. That we actually put people underwater, leave them there for three days to let an image really sink in. No, I'm just kidding. We don't do that. We bring people up to new life in baptism to show that death isn't the last word. Tetelestai, it is finished. God keeps his promises. Sin is canceled. Shame is canceled. Death is canceled. Last one, Satan is defeated. And this is the one that we kind of get a little weird and a little awkward over because we don't want to really think and we don't want to really dwell on the fact that there's a being whose sole purpose in existence is to trip us up and separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like that's an understandably uncomfortable thought. And i got to speak into it a little bit, because if, if the church doesn't, then the culture kind of speaks in on, on our behalf, and, and, and we start to believe these things. So, for example, sometimes we start to believe that, like, I don't know, maybe the, maybe the good and evil, like, like, scales thing is real, or maybe, like, the, the yin and yang, kind of, like, black and white image, you know, about, like, a little bit of good, a little bit of bad. You know, maybe these two are, like, two equal but opposite forces, good and evil, God and Satan, who are, like, cosmically battling it out. And church, I want to say, that's not our story. I don't know exactly who that belongs to, but that's not Christianity. And honestly, I think all of us, and even other religions, we kind of like fall into that when it's just kind of assumed because it's such a, a dominant cultural thing. But when Jesus has the opportunity to speak into that narrative in particular, he says from the moment that Satan thought, you know what, I think I could do this God's job better than he could. You know how long it took for God to deal with that? Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's how long it took. That's the power differential between good and evil, between God and Satan. It's not equal, but opposite. It's not even close to that. He has no power unless we give it to him. And because we consistently give him that power, I want to highlight, he's only got real two main tools that are his go-to again and again. And we fall for it. I fall for it a lot. His two tools, number one is temptation. And number two is condemnation. Number one is temptation. He minimizes. It's not that big a deal. Don't worry about it. They won't even notice anyway. This is how everybody gets ahead. It's not, it's not a thing. Temptation, and it's minimized. But then as soon as you say yes, and as soon as you do it, <laughs> condemnation, and the minimizing is maximized. 
I can't believe you. I, you're the type of person who, this is you to the core. This isn't just what you did. This is who you are. And condemnation gets ratcheted up again and again. Temptation and condemnation, minimizing and maximizing. And listen, church, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. He paid for it. He paid for sin. He canceled sin. He canceled shame. He defeated death. He conquered over it. There's no more condemnation. We need to highlight this thing so we recognize just what was done on our behalf. Instead of condemnation, I want to introduce another word from Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says that you are God's workmanship in most Bibles. Honestly, I think that's a little weak. Because when God does something, when God makes something, I think it means more than just a workmanship. When an artist does something, and it's good, it's beautiful, it's valuable, and it teaches something to us about the inner workings of the artist. And when God looked at you, he called you, maybe not a workmanship, God looks at you and he called you a masterpiece and said, I make masterpieces out of the broken pieces. This is what I do as an artist. And the pieces of art that I do are beautiful and they're valuable. And you look at them and you get an insight into my inner workings. God says, I am the artist and you are the art. I am the painter and you are the canvas. I am the sculptor and you and I, we are the pieces of marble and granite dug down deep yet in the quarry, yet to be unearthed. But God says, I am making a masterpiece out of you and your broken pieces. This is what I'm doing. There's no condemnation into that. You haven't seen what I can do. You're beautiful and you're valuable. And anybody who meets you sees something about me. There's a well-known evangelist and preacher named uh, D.L. Moody who lived some time ago. And he loved telling people about Jesus. He loved even more to introduce people to Jesus for the first time. And so after one of his messages at the church, a guy comes up to him and he says, Pastor Moody, what must I do? What do I have to do to be saved. And Moody looks at the guy and he says, ah, I'm sorry, you're too late. The guy's like, too late? And Moody says, there's nothing you can do. There's only what has already been done for you. You are a masterpiece. God made you out of your broken pieces. We're going to leave all kinds of things left unfinished, left undone in our lifetime. You think about you as that guy. I hope the decision to just believe that you are the masterpiece of God, that you are forgiven, that sin and shame and death are canceled, I hope that that decision is not one that's left unfinished. I want you to stand up where you are. Let's pray together. And if you're praying this, 
and you feel the spirit of the nudge you, this is a time to go to God and to make this your story. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord. Lord, we're sorry for the sin. We're sorry for carrying the shame. We're sorry for giving in to the temptation and believing the condemnation. Thank you, Jesus, for victory over sin and death and shame and fear. Help us, Spirit, to live God-focused lives, to hand over to you all of the broken pieces in our past and to see what you will make of them, your masterpiece in the future. Jesus, handing over our broken pieces, we pray to you. Amen.